0: Heavenly Father, we do thank you uh, for sending us your son and giving us your spirit until all the work you would have us do to be done for the sake of Christ and the gospel. So we thank you for the living word, our Lord Jesus. We thank you for the written word. We thank you for the church, which is the pillar and support of the truth. And we thank you that we get to receive it now. Please bless this time, God, and everyone here. In Christ's precious name we pray. Amen. Let us turn to our Bibles in Genesis chapter 4, and we kind of have to jump right into it because there's a lot to cover in this wonderful next chapter of Genesis as we continue our God's Story of Beginnings series. And last week, we saw that Adam and Eve, as they bring sin into the world, what happens? They get banished from the Garden of Eden, and this was a mercy of God as we went over, a blessed banishment. And what happens next here in Genesis chapter 4? None other than bloody murder. Let's read the text. It's going to be Genesis 4, 1 through 16, believe it or not. Yes, we're going to do that. 1 through 16 this morning. So if you can, it is quite a lengthy passage, but if you can, please stand. If not, that's fine. But um, I'm going to read it so we get it back into our minds. Genesis 4, verses 1 through 16. Now, the man had relations with his wife, Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. And she said, I have gotten a man child with the help of the Lord. Again, she gave birth to his brother, Abel. And Abel was a keeper of flocks, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. Abel, on his part, also brought of the firstlings of his flock, And of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering, but for Cain and for his offering he had no regard. So Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. And its desire is for you, but you must master it. Cain told Abel his brother, and it came about when they were in the field, that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? He said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you cultivate the ground, it will no longer yield its strength to you. You will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth. And Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is too great to bear. Behold, you have driven me from this day from the face of the ground. You have driven me this day from the face of the ground and from your face. I will be hidden and I will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth. And whoever finds me will kill me. So the Lord said to him, therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance will be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord appointed a sign for Cain so that no one finding him would slay him. Then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Please be seated. In your bulletin is some notes and uh, the sermon theme, the big idea for today in this passage in Genesis 4. Our sermon title is Murder, He Wrote. And when my wife saw that, she was preparing the bulletin. She said, who's he? And, uh, well, that would be God, first of all. But it would be Moses, who is the author, human author, that God used to write the Pentateuch, right? Genesis through Deuteronomy. Murder, he wrote. The big idea here is that God cares deeply as God cares deeply about our faith and attitude in worship. We must be vigilant in dealing with our sins, not taking God's mercy for granted. And before we get into our, our three points here, I need to set the scene a little bit. These first couple verses do that for us. Verses one and two says now the man had relations with his wife Eve And she conceived, right? That word now, just like in Genesis 3, verse 1, if you go back a chapter, it says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord made, right? So we don't know exactly how long it was until the serpent showed up um, after God created Adam and Eve and they were in the garden. It doesn't seem like it was a whole lot of time. doesn't seem like it was that long a time. Same case here in Genesis chapter 4. After Adam and Eve are banished from the Garden of Eden, they're out there somewhere east and now, what happens? The man had relations with his wife Eve, and so she gets pregnant. Uh, not too long after that time, and um, they she bears their first man child, naming him Cain. <clears throat> and by the way, the text doesn't bother to mention it, but no doubt Eve went through severe pain in bearing this child, as God promised, right? And so his name Cain means to acquire or to possess. Okay, um, the Hebrew verb there is Kayin. Uh, it means gotten one, gotten one. Eve says, I have gotten a man child, a man. Hebrew ish, right? Isha's is woman, ish is man. I've gotten a son. By the way, she could tell the child's gender just by one quick look at him. Okay, there's no confusion there whatsoever. And she says it's with the help of the Lord. So um, notice that Eve purposely acknowledges that God is the one who gave her this gift uh, she has gotten him by the help of the Lord, actually help of theirs in italics in the NASB, because it's implied. It just could be by God. By God, she has gotten this this man child, this son. It's a miraculous birth. Just imagine the very first baby ever. Okay? Um we were blessed to hear about Dave and Linda being grandparents for the first time uh, just uh, last week. and. Um, What a joy that is. What a miracle that is. What a what an incredible just any time a child is born and especially amongst those that we love and care for. But um, just the gift of life, the miracle of life. Imagine the very, very first one. Okay, They might have seen some animals being born. I I don't know. Doesn't say. But um, anyway, this first precious baby, his name is Cain. So far, so good. Right. But verse two, again, she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now, the name Abel is not defined here in the text. But quite possibly, there's a bit of an ominous, ominous tone here. Why? Because Abel's name, uh, which is the Hebrew word Hevel, means breath or vapor. And so it's perhaps a foreshadowing of Abel's untimely and premature death. When was Abel born? The text simply says again, hey, but it seems quite soon after Cain's birth that Abel was born. In fact, some believe that Cain and Abel were twins because their births are so closely recorded together in the passage here. And also looking at the language used in this passage, um, there's only one conception that we're told of and two births. Did you see that? This is in contrast to the more normal way of Hebraic accounting of multiple births, for instance, in Genesis 29, verses 32 and 33, you don't have to go there, but just um, this is Leah, right? Um, Jacob's one of Jacob's wives. Uh, the conception and then birth of each child is mentioned. It says, "And Leah conce- conceived and bore a son, that was Reuben." And then she conceived again and bore a son, that was Simeon. And then she conceived and bore a son, that was Levi, and so on, right? Um, but here, look how it's word in Genesis 4. It says, "She conceived and gave birth to Cain." Again, she gave birth to his brother, Abel. See that? It seems like there's only one conception and yet two births. So I don't know that we can say for certain that they're twins, but I think it's highly possible. I kind of think that they were. Um, Either they're twins or if not, they're like nine months apart. Okay, Very close, closely um, uh, in time uh, born. So second part of verse two says, Abel was a keeper of flocks, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. So, both of them are farmers of sorts. Abel tended to the animals. He was like the the shepherd or or the cowboy of the family. And Cain tilled the ground. The gardener of the family. Both of those are respectable occupations. Both of them fulfilling part of the creation mandate, right? Which God gave to Adam and Eve to subdue the earth and rule over the animals. So... That's kind of the scene here. It seems like things are so far so good. But once again, the big idea, God cares deeply about our worship, our faith and attitude and worship. So our first point is that careless worship displeases God. Yeah, I tried to make it as simple and succinct as possible. Careless worship displeases God. Verse three. So it came about in the course of time. Again, we don't know exactly how much time passed. We don't know exactly how old Cain and Abel were. It seems like they were adults at this point. But it doesn't seem that long until sin brings drama into the lives of the first family. It came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. Abel on his part also brought the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering, but for Cain and for his offering, he had no regard. First of all, I want you to notice that right away from the very beginning of history, people are worshiping God. You see that um, they're bringing sacrifices and offerings unto the Lord. Okay, it doesn't even tell us that God told them to do this. It just states that that's what it is. That's what these first humans did. And it's apparent that worship was happening from the start. So I assume that God just in between the lines here gave them some directions uh, to, to give sacrifices and then bring offerings to him. That said, the glaring question here is why did the Lord have regard for Abel and his offering and not for Cain and for his offering? And I want you to see a number of things from this passage about the language. Okay, number one, there's a slight contrast between Cain's offering and Abel's. It says that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground, but Abel, okay, Abel, on the other hand, brought the what? Firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. Which is to say, Abel brought the very best of his animals and the very best parts of his animals. But Cain merely brought an offering of the fruit of the ground. Cain's doesn't seem to be very consecrated. Doesn't seem very special in any way. So there's that contrast, that difference in what they brought to God. As offerings. The second thing is this. It's not just the offering, but look carefully at the text. It says the Lord had regard, had respect for Abel and for his offering. Okay? So it was Abel himself that God was pleased with, that God had regard for, and the offering that he brought. It seems evident that there's something about Abel, his attitude, his spirit, his worship that was pleasing to God. It seems that this internal attitude revealed was revealed in what he offered to God externally. The very best part of his animals and the very best of his animals. Again, the contrast with Cain is clear in the text. But that's a contrasting conjunction. Right. But for Cain and for his offering, God had no regard. The text puts both of their names first. It's not just what they brought. There's something about their character, something about them that God had regard for and God did not have regard for. Not just the what, but the character or manner themselves. And so Hebrews 11, verse 4 um, is so helpful. It gives us the best explanation of this. Hebrews 11, verse 4, and um, you can either turn there or just follow along with me. But we know Hebrews is the hall of faith. The hall of faith is the hall of fame in baseball, Right. Um, but here we call it the Hall of Faith because it's that just list of, of Old Testament saints who were commended by God for having faith in him. Right. And so that list, that Hall of Faith begins with none other than guess who? Abel. Okay? Hebrews 11, verse four, it says this by faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous, God testifying about his gifts. And through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. And this is a commendation of Abel. In other words, it was Abel's faith in God that made his offerings pleasing to God. It made his offerings a better sacrifice than Cain's. Um, so if it was Abel's faith, his belief, his trust, his knowledge of God, that made his offerings acceptable to God and showed that his character was righteous before God. then I think we can deduce that Cain was not pleasing to God, not deemed righteous to God, because Cain did not have faith in God. I mean, without faith, it is impossible to please God, Hebrews 11:6, right? Somehow Cain did not truly trust in the Lord. he did not have a heart of faith, he did not believe God's word and God's promises like Abel did. And so there's only a few mentions of Cain in the New Testament. And the next one I want to want to point you to is 1 John chapter 3. 1 John 3 verses 11 and 12. It says this: For this is the message which you have heard from the beginning that we should love one another. Verse 12, not as Cain, who was of the evil one, and slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. First John three eleven and 12. And just a quick side note here. Um the apostle John took Genesis literally. Okay? These uh Cain was was a real historical man to him. And so just it's not an allegory, this is not some you know, fable or moral uh principle that, that God is teaching. This is literal God's history. Okay? So, um, the last part, the last and only other scripture that that speaks of Cain, all these are negative descriptions, okay? Jude, verses 10 and 11. Jude 10 and 11 says, But these men, and Jude is referring to false teachers uh, back in verse 4 of Jude. He says, These men, false teachers, false believers, revile the things which they do not understand. And the things which they know by instinct, like unreasoning animals, by these things they are destroyed. Woe to them, for they have gone the way of who? Of Cain. And for pay they have rushed headlong into the error of Balaam and perished in the rebellion of Korah. In other words, false faith that leads to death and destruction. That is the way of Cain. Okay, woe to them. Woe to them, says Jude. So Cain had an internal issue. He had a heart problem, an attitude problem. This inner lack of faith and trust in God. And it affected his outward offering, his external giving. He just gave God an offering of the fruit of the ground. No real thought, no special preparations. Again, not the first fruits of the ground or the crops that he grew, which, by the way, was not easy to come by. Remember, the ground was cursed by your sweat and your blood and your tears. You're going to you're going to make bread. And so God was not pleased. God had no regard, no respect, no favor for Cain and for Cain's offering. And why again? It's because there's no trust there. Cain didn't trust in in the living God, which showed in his thoughtless offering. So the point is this. Careless offerings, thoughtless worship, careless worship displeases God. It was true then, way back in the beginning in Cain and Abel's time. And it's true. The same principle is true now. So I ask you, by way of application, uh, what do our offerings and our worship look like to God? What is our attitude when we come to church to worship? How is the preparation of our tithes and offerings and ourselves, not just what we give, but our hearts, which God sees? Pastor Bill read from 2 Corinthians 8, which gives a great New Testament description of how we are supposed to come and give By the way, importantly, I want to mention that God did not need the crops from his own ground, from Cain. And God didn't need his own animals from Abel. Likewise for us, God doesn't need the money, the resources that he gave to you. God is always after our hearts. He's always about the heart. Whether we're applying this to worship in general or the giving of our offerings as part of that worship, what presses on our hearts this morning is, how is your attitude of worship this Lord's Day morning and each Lord's Day? God is dishonored and displeased with unprepared, thoughtless worship with careless offerings. And I want to say, uh, praise the Lord. On the other hand, if you are in the habit of coming to church on Sundays prepared, every day's worship, so going to work, Prepared in worship of God Monday through Friday, Um, coming with a reverent heart, prepared to give to God and to give and to serve others. Praise the Lord if you're in the habit of preparing your tithes and offerings before coming to church on Sunday morning, ready and thankful to give of your hard-earned money to God. Be encouraged if that's you, if that describes you today. God has regard and favor and blessing and um, I could go on a side thing from Philippians 4, verses 15 through 19, but I'll just commend that to you. Look at it this um, this week, Philippians 4, verses 15 to 19. God is not just um, pleased. Paul is not just pleased with the gift that is given to him, but he's thankful because he knows that as the, the believers give to him, that they are going to be spiritually blessed. Hey, they are blessed in the giving, and it's a fragrant, sweet aroma to God. And uh, that is where it's at. Okay? So praise the Lord if that's you and that's your habit, that's your life, that's just your character. You're, you're like Abel. Okay? Bringing uh, that sacrifice, offering yourself, as we sang, take my life and let it be consecrated, set apart, Lord, to thee. Praise God. I praise God for the saints of our church who that describes you. That describes you. But some of us today may need to take a bit of spiritual inventory. Evaluate what is your attitude in worship? Are you prepared? Is your internal attitude showing in the offerings that you give? Okay, it does, it does matter. Our external actions normally indicate what's going on inside, right? It's like our, our, our dress, our clothes. If we're unprepared and we're just barely waking up and we throw something together and we come to church, we're not really presentable even before other people, but especially to God. Okay, our, our internal heart shows in our outward appearance. And so are we prepared to give, as Hebrews 10:24 says, to encourage, to love, to stir one another up? So, again, it's not ultimately um, the quantity of our giving, but I believe it's true, just like with Cain and Abel. What's inside of our hearts is revealed in what we give and how we give, even the quantity of our giving. But ultimately, it's about the affections of our hearts. John Piper says this. I'm astonished at people who say that they believe in God, but live as if happiness is found by giving him 2% of their attention. End quote. And does that describe anybody you know? Oh, I believe in Jesus. I go to church. I believe in God. But they live Monday through through Saturday, uh, giving God 2% of their attention, actual attention. And so it says the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering, but for Cain and for his offering, he had no regard. So how did Cain respond with this news that God was not pleased with him? Point number two, the next verses. Uncurbed sin can lead to extreme sin. Uncurbed sin can lead to extreme sin. How did Cain respond? He became very angry and his countenance fell. His response to God's displeasure toward him was sinful anger. The Hebrew, uh, literally, it's, and it was hot to Cain. And that Hebrew idiom expresses that Cain burned with anger. And he, was, he was Dave's hot chicken reaper, spicy, angry with God. Okay? His internal anger, it showed in his face. His countenance fell his facial expression reflected that burning anger and de- dejection that he felt. And so who was Cain's anger against? Who was it against? Ultimately, it was towards God. Yes, it was towards the situation he found himself in, uncomfortable. Yes, it was towards his brother, jealousy, bitterness, anger, towards his brother Abel. But ultimately, it was towards God. And I want to ask you a question. Um, who is the one... Who should be angry here? God, that's right. Who? Who? Uh, Cain is angry. Cain is hurt. Who should actually be angry? Who should actually be hurt? That's God Himself. And we understand that God is angry against sin. The Bible tells us that over and over. We're going to get to uh, Genesis six. Psalm seven eleven always comes to mind. You know, I just God is indignant every day against sinners. It is offensive to Him. So yes, He's the one who should be angry here. For Cain, his thoughtless offerings, his faithless giving to God. So, I, I want you to listen again. I'm pressing in here a little bit. But, um, treating God like he's not worthy of special gifts, of careful offerings, uh, when we come to his house, as if he's someone who can be treated lightly, hey, without utmost reverence, without utter devotion, without considerable fear and complete love. Treating him like that is is hurtful, and it's it stirs up judgment and, and anger. Uh, many times we treat human people, human authorities, with more respect. Right? Just even the custom of coming going to someone's house. Right? We get invited over for a meal, or maybe it's a just a, a new house or. We have the custom of bringing like a, a small gift, right? A token, a, a measure of our, our thankfulness for, for the invitation. Imagine going to a king's palace and being invited for, for dinner there and for the company. Uh, would you go empty-handed, unprepared, barely awake, without being properly dressed, cleaned up, without something to give, without a, a measure of thanks? Hey, we wouldn't, we wouldn't dare imagine. Going to a king's, earthly king's palace uh, upon an invitation, like in such manner. But when we come to God's house with such carelessness, lack of devotion, treating God like he's common, okay, like he's profane, bringing him down to our level, okay, rather than what we're here to do in church every Sunday, which is to exalt him, to extol him, to praise him, to lift him up in our hearts and our spirits and our minds and our strength, to love him. This doesn't just offend God. I would say this is hurtful to our heavenly father. Hurtful. Hey, like even an earthly father is hurt when kids are disobedient or don't show respect or act like he's not, a, he's not important at all. Ah, that's just my dad. Hey, we need to repent and ask God's forgiveness if that describes any of us this morning. And Maybe some mornings are, are, are better than others. But back to Cain here. In unrighteousness and lack of faith, his response, it's not one of repentance. He doesn't respond to God's displeasure with humility, but rather with prideful anger. And God asks him, because God sees that, right? God, the Lord, Yahweh, says to Cain, why are you angry? Why has your countenance fallen? So God comes with some words of instruction and warning. Hey, like a loving father. He asks Cain to consider why he's angry. And why the long face, right? And some teaching and admonition follows to help him turn that turn that frown upside down. He gives some positive instruction first. He says, If you do well, hey, okay, if you act in faith, dear Cain, bring me offerings that show a believing, faithful, trusting, worshipful heart. I will be pleased and you'll be happy. Okay. Spurgeon said this there will be three effects of nearness to God, nearness to Christ. Humility, holiness, and happiness. I think that's true. As we draw near to God, as we we, we desire to, to worship Him and be pleasing to Him, humility, holiness, and happiness. And so this is what God is encouraging Cain to do, but He also gives him words of warning. If you do not do well, in other words, if you continue to live and worship in your faithless attitude and behavior, Sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is is for you. God is warning that that sin, okay, Cain's own inclination to sin, to go against God, it's nearby. It's like an animal waiting and and wanting to pounce on you. First Peter five, right? Um, it describes Satan that way, just crouching, ready ready to pounce. It's like a a criminal waiting for the opportune moment to break in and steal, break into your house. Or like a killer waiting for the chance to destroy and take life. It's like our neighborhood cat years ago, who, when our our pet parakeet just got on the ground for one second, snatched that thing and just ran away with it in its mouth. Sin wants to take control, to dominate you, to do you harm like that. God says to Cain, but you must master it. You must master it. How? How can Cain master his sin? How can anyone master his sin? Listen, it's by trusting in God's word, okay? believing his promises, putting your faith in him alone. So it's not that God is saying, well, Cain, you just need to do better, right? Don't just give me any offering, give me the first fruits of your crops. Okay, just do good and then you'll master sin. Okay, no, that's that's not what he's saying. Okay, it starts on the inside. It's about, once again, the heart. It starts with true faith in God. And this is what Cain was lacking. So instead of repenting, verse 8, instead of repenting, verse 8, Cain told his, told Abel, his brother, it came about when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. Notice that repetition there. His brother, his brother, right? Cain loses another opportunity to repent. His unchecked sin, uncurbed sin, Already it was serious, okay? faithless attitude, anger. It turns into extreme sin, bloody murder. And uh, it says there, Cain told Abel his brother. Some older translations, which I think make sense to me, they're good renderings. I think it says, and Cain said unto Abel his brother, "Let us go into the field." Okay, it kind of connects those phrases a little more closely. Um, that they went shortly after they talked is either explicit like that older translation or it's implied like it is here. Okay. The point is, instead of confessing his sin and mastering it, sin overtakes him and he acts on it in the most heinous way. Unrepentant anger, jealousy, it culminates in deliberate murder of his brother. It wasn't spur of the moment passion. It wasn't a sudden loss of temper. This was a premeditated murder. And it was the result of a heart that was filled with resentment and malice and enmity. Cain did not heed God's instructions. And his own sinful flesh took control and pounces into action just as God warned him. See, the point, dear people, is that uncurbed sin, unchecked sin, undealt with sin can lead to more extreme sin. At least that's what I want us to get implication wise from this text this morning. So what about us when God confronts us with sin? Sometimes it's through his word, our own study, through hearing sermons. Sometimes it's through another person, a spouse, parent, child. Sometimes it's a a church family member. Sometimes a friend. Okay, when we are confronted with that, are we quick to admit wrongdoing? Are we quick to repent and ask for forgiveness? Hey, listen, we might think that we're not capable of of gross sin, of extreme sin like murder, I would never do that. Immorality, uh, adultery, I would, I would never, I would never go there. A sexual immorality, I, w- I would never do that. Stealing, cheating, drifting away from God, drifting away from from Christ, from the church, no, 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 that that, that won't be me. Uncurbed sin, unchecked sin, undealt with sin, unconfronted sin, yes, can lead to more extreme sin. Cain killed his brother due to unchecked sin. By the way, the text doesn't say how he killed his brother. Okay. We might have in our minds that he used a a knife or or a dagger of some sort, which is possible, or it could have been with his own bare hands choking him to death. Uh, Maybe the Lord's statement a little bit later, your brother's blood gives a hint that there were blows of some sort struck whether by some blunt instrument or his bare fists, which drew blood. In any case, the language here in verse 8 doesn't seem like it was a a long-range shot. I don't even know if bows and arrows were around then or a, a stone throw. This seems up close and personal is what I'm trying to bring out. And he kills his own brother. This guy who he lived with, he grew up with, knew all these years, possibly his twin, possibly someone who looks exactly like him, his brother And so in verse 9, Yahweh says to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? God is not asking for information here. He knows what happened. He questions Cain so as to draw out the answer from him. Cain says, I I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? On top of all the other sins that Cain has already committed, including the cold-blooded murder of his own brother, what does he add to the list? Falsehood. Lying. I don't know where he is. <laughs> Talking to God like that. Why does he lie? Obviously, in order to cover his sin, right? To try to escape trouble. Isn't that why we lie also sometimes? And this only gets us into further trouble. And yet, we keep trying, right? Lie upon lie upon lie. He asked, am, am I my brother's keeper? Uh, implying, Am I supposed to be watching over my younger brother all the time? Is that my job? Answer, well, yeah. yeah. He's your brother. You should look out for one another. What an arrogant reply this is to to God, the Creator. Verse 10, he said, God says, What have you done? Yeah, in other words, Cain, I know exactly what you've done. You've taken the life of your brother. You have killed him. His voice, his blood is crying out to the ground to me. And this is what... God warned him of just before, right? If he rem- remains in his faithless way, sin is crouching at the door; it desires for him to control him. It's exactly what happened. And there, there's another quick lesson here I want to give: that sin always deceives us. Okay, sin promises that things will be better, will be better, if we do it our way. But this is deception. Okay, whether it's from Satan, or it's from the world, or it's from our own sinful inclination and sinful flesh. Uh it's like a like a snake. And somebody told a story of um just some just a it's a Native American story. Hey, many years ago Indian youths would go away in solitude to prepare for manhood. And one such youth hiked into a beautiful valley, green with trees, bright with flowers. He fasted, and on the third day, as he looked up at the surrounding mountains, he noticed one tall, rugged peak capped with dazzling snow. I will test myself against that mountain, he thought. Puts on his buffalo hide shirt, threw his blanket over his shoulders, and set off to climb the peak. When he reached the top, he stood on the rim of the world. He could see forever, and his heart swelled with pride. But then he heard a rustle at his feet. Looking down, he saw a snake. Before he could move, the snake spoke. I am about to die, said the snake. It is too cold for me up here, and I am freezing. There is no food, and I am starving. Put me under your shirt and take me down to the valley. No, said the youth. I am forewarned. I know you're kind. You're a rattlesnake. If I pick you up, you will bite, and your bite will kill me. Not so, said the snake. I will treat you differently. If you do this for me, you will be special. I will not harm you. The youth resisted a while, but this was a very persuasive snake with beautiful markings on its skin. At last, the youth tucked it under a shirt and carried it down to the valley. There he laid it gently on the grass when suddenly the snake coiled, rattled and leapt, biting him on the leg. But you promised, cried the youth. You knew what I was when you picked me up, said the snake as it slithered away. point is, let us heed the warning of God, instructions of God. Um, Flee sin, flee immorality, flee temptations. Sin leads us to stray further than we thought we'd stray, stay longer than we thought we'd stay, and pay more than we thought we'd pay, as some have put it. The time to flee is now. Hey, we should do what, what John Bunyan, um, the old Puritan, said uh, when he was thrown in prison. Uh, he says, I will stay in prison until the moss grows on my eyelids rather than disobey God. Last point. Last point. Verses 11 to 16 is going to be the quickest one. Compassion and mercy mark God's righteous judgments, compassion and mercy mark God's righteous judgments. We see in verses uh, 11 and 12 that God gives a swift punishment to Cain and it's a twofold righteous, fair judgment. Right? You are cursed from the ground, just open its mouth to receive your brother's blood. When you cultivate the ground, it will no longer yield its strength to you. You will be a vagrant and wanderer on the earth. So the first part of it is, he's not going to be able to make a living from the ground. Right? From farming, which is what his occupation was. Raising crops in the field. Because God has cursed it. Um, you remember, actually the ground was already cursed, right? That was the curse to Adam, to man. Work would be toilsome. But apparently at this point, to this point, Cain was able to get some plants, some crops to grow, but this will not be the case for him anymore. The second part of it is this. Cain won't be able to settle down and farm the land to to make a living. He instead will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth. He's going to be a a nomad without a a place to settle, a place to call home, going about here and there. that's not a way to live. Note that uh, God spared Cain's life. He would have been completely justified and fair and right if he he killed Cain on the spot. But again, even amidst judgment and discipline, God is gracious and merciful. That's the point. God gives opportunity, further opportunity, for Cain to repent, to believe in God, worship the one true God righteously in real faith, and according to Hebrews 11 that we saw, First John 3, Jude 10, uh, it doesn't seem like Cain ever did that. And so, verse 13, Cain blows yet another chance for that repentance and to get right with God. I pray that nobody here would blow this opportunity this morning to get right with God, to turn from sin and trust in Jesus Christ alone, the Savior who died for your sins. Cain was still filled with pride and apparently anger and apparently also fear. Instead of apologizing, instead of begging forgiveness, asking for God's favor, what does he do? He complains. This is too much punishment, God. I can't take it. Right? You've driven me this day from the face of the ground. From your face I will be hidden. I'll be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth He repeats God's judgment on him. And then he says, and whoever finds me will kill me ironically, the one who killed his own brother is now afraid of a brother killing him. And the question that everybody has is who is out there in the world, right, at this point in time, that Cain would be afraid of someone killing him? Um, Answer. Two possible answers. One is that Cain might be speaking of the future when more people, okay, who would all be his brothers and sisters from Adam and Eve, um, relatives from Adam and Eve, um, when more people would be populating the earth. So he might be talking about a future time that he's he's afraid of. Uh, the second answer is this. It could be that by this time, where Cain and Abel, again, we don't know exactly how old they were, but it seems like they're adults. They have their own occupations. Um, they're old enough for that, vocational duties. Uh, maybe by this time, Adam and Eve had many other sons and daughters who Cain knew about, and so he feared that one of them might kill him. And so Genesis 5 verse 4, we're going to get more into this next Sunday about his wife. And and when we get to Genesis 5, maybe talk about it a little more. But Genesis 5 verse 4 says, then the days of Adam and Eve, uh, then the days of Adam after he became the father of Seth were 800 years and he had other sons and daughters. So there's a question when those sons and other sons and daughters were born and were alive. Okay. So we'll go into that more, but uh, those are the two answers to that. Confounding question, right? Who was Cain afraid of? So whoever it was, whether it was in the present or in the future, God acknowledges Cain's complaint and fear, and God responds with much compassion, right? So the Lord says to him, verse 15, Therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance will be taken on him sevenfold. God promises protection for Cain. Such mercy and grace. Okay, this This shows from... The very beginning of the Bible, which we've already seen, God's character. Okay, God is the same yesterday, today, forever. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, forever. This is versus the notion that many people have of God. Okay, some people who even profess to be Christians. Many who uh, just, it, I, before I was a Christian, this was my notion of, of God in the Old Testament, right? In the Old Testament, he's mean, wrathful, judging. And New Testament, God is kinder, gentler, right? Um, gracious. That's a wrong view of God. He is and always has been full of mercy, everlasting loving kindness, patient, compassionate, and, of course, holy, righteous, and wrathful. Old Testament, New Testament, this is the same God. So this wonderful God says, vengeance will be taken on the one who kills Cain sevenfold, Sevenfold. It appears to mean seven times worse. Um, their judgment will be um, on someone who kills Cain. Sevenfold, that could mean perfection or fulfillment, like utter, utter perfection, utter fulfillment. In other words, bad news for anybody who kills Cain. And he appoints a sign for Cain. Okay. I don't know if this is a mark on his head or, you know, the first facial tattoo. I, I don't know, or something else. Um, it doesn't specify what this sign, I don't think it was the facial tattoo, okay? but uh, it doesn't specify what this sign was exactly, but evidently it would be distinct enough for people, for everyone to know that Cain was not to be messed with, he was not to be killed. And so I hope we're getting from the text this morning that God is compassionate and merciful and even in his righteous judgments, that part of his character comes through We should see it loud and clear. So verse 16, our final verse here, says, Then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord. That is an awful, awful place to be, dear people. Away from the presence of the Lord. Again, does that describe you this morning? I hope not. Away from God, away from Christ, away from his people, um, outside of his blessing and favor a faithless worship, careless giving, no giving. I don't know. Maybe that describes you. Hey, God would not have it be that way. Don't be out of the presence of the Lord. We're going to look at this more next week as a jump start to our next passage. He settles in the land of Nod, east of Eden. But how um, God cares, dear people, about our worship, about our internal attitude and faith in worship. And we need to be vigilant, diligent, dealing with our sins, evaluating, examining ourselves to see if we are truly in the faith. And we should not take God's compassion and mercy for granted. Okay? He loves you. He's he's unspeakably patient and merciful towards you. Don't take it for granted, people. Get right with God. Um, if you are in Christ, uh, be sure to repent of your sins next week we we observe communion it's a special time special just uh marker for us to make sure we're examining ourselves examining our souls our walk with the Lord and so precious precious time in communion but um, let's take these things to heart as we read the big picture is that sin is is awful sin follows right after Genesis 3 and this murder bloody murder and yet God offers mercy and grace and calls us to, to come to him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for giving us your word once again. And what a story this is. And it's not just any old story. It's your story. The story of beginnings. And God, as we search the our own hearts uh, today, uh, I pray that Many of us would be encouraged uh, just because our, our our salvation is evident and our sanctification is is growing and uh, we're living in a manner uh, as a pattern that's pleasing to you. And uh, I praise you, God, for uh, your work and your words work in our hearts and our spirits and our lives. And um, yet, God, this is a blessing to be convicted as well. And uh, if we are apart from you today. Uh, I pray that your truth, your word, which is given to us in grace and mercy, would draw us back uh, to your loving kindness. Draw us back to to worship of you, true worship and faith to you, God. So um, we lift these things up to you and thankful for for your word, your grace to us. In Jesus' name, amen.